Cry Malt has been supplying the best ingredients to Australian and New Zealand brewers for 30 years. Their range of malt, hops and yeast is sure to take your beer to the next level. Proud sponsors of Brews News and Beer as a Conversation since the very beginning. Learn more about Cry Malt at www.crymalt.com. part of the plan to put a brewery in but for many years it was just a plan it's 100 acquisition of green beacon no we had a chat with everybody anyone would have seen this coming a mile away you know the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing oh yeah that's super simple and direct question it's always fun to get to speak about beer Because we like to talk beer on Beer is a Conversation, uh, today we have Dayton Coffee on the show. Um, hey, Dayton. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, now, for those who don't know, uh, Dayton is moving into the newly created role of Head of Operations for Brewing, uh, based at Mismatch Brewery, uh, but that's for Mighty Craft. In this role, Dayton will oversee the Mismatch and Jetty Road Breweries and liaise with contract brewers, including Australian Beer Co., which are making better beer. Thanks for coming on again. Um, how are you doing? Is it What's it like down there? It sounds a bit chilly. <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, yeah, we're heading into the cooler months here in the Adelaide Hills, so it gets a little frosty, but everything's all good. So, yeah, like I said, congrats on your new role, um, although not new to the business. You've been um, with Mismatch for, since 2020, is that right? Correct. Yeah, I'm just moving into this new role with Mighty Craft, uh, but previous to that, I've been working with Mismatch in kind of like a quality and operations role. Oh, good. So you know the ropes, um, but this is just expanding on your role a little bit more. Yeah, familiar with familiar with the businesses and the people involved, um, but just moving to a, a slightly different role. Now, you've had a very interesting career history, so obviously I've done my research. Um, but yeah, tell me a little bit about it. Start from the beginning. How did you get into brewing? And then how did you get all the way here? All And you've gone around and about the houses. There's been a US trip in this there's been a return to Australia it's been a bit of a journey hasn't it Dayton yeah it has and it's um it's been a pretty long time now too which is a little scary but my first brewing role was with uh the West End Brewery here in Adelaide as part of the Lion Group uh that was way back in 04 or 05 now I think so some time has passed. I, I started there in the lab as a microbiologist and doing some quality related stuff and then moved into the brewing department there for a few years uh, as a brewing team leader before moving to Sydney to be a brewer with Malt Shovel making the James Squire range. And that was about 2010, I think I moved over there. Um, I was there for two and a half to three years, I think. And then at the beginning of 2013, I made the move to the US as a quality manager for a brewery in Michigan called New Holland Brewing. They were kind of a regional size brewery distributing across a few different states and growing pretty quickly. So they needed some help with their quality program. So I, I moved over there to help them out with that and moved from the lab or the quality role there into an operations manager role with, with that brewery. Did that for a few years and then moved 
again within that company to more of a um it was like a technical director role where i looked after uh still looked after quality but we were doing a lot more like slightly bigger picture stuff like working with what's the best way to to make more beer uh equipment we need um building out the brewery to to expand so we did that for a couple of years before um deciding to leave the us and and coming back to Australia, um, which coincidentally was the same time as COVID. Um, and then, yeah, when I got back here, I started with Mismatch. And that was beginning of 2020. Fantastic. And I've just, so many questions have just popped into my head with, as, as you were speaking as well. Because, I mean, must have been a really interesting time for you um, when you just started out in a major brewer the landscape then would have been so different than it is now like you wouldn't have had the craft brewers did you were you even aware that there were that many knocking around at that point no when i started at west end craft beer was was barely a thing at all the only one that i could remember being around back then was um grumpies up in the adelaide hills and that was only a tiny yeah yeah a tiny brewery with a pizza oven um Apart from that, I don't I don't remember many uh, in like small independent or craft breweries back then, and back then brewing wasn't really a uh, like a well known career either. Um, there were so few people in the industry back then. It was a it was a different time. Yeah, absolutely. And interesting that you came through um, from microbiology into brewing rather than, like you say, it wasn't really a career path, so there wouldn't necessarily have been any qualifications. Not in Australia, anyway. Did you find that transition easy, hard, pretty much the same thing, but just focusing very specifically on brewing? Uh, it was interesting. I'd, I'd come from a um, – before West End, I was working in a research-type lab, so I wasn't really um, aware of production in general even. So moving from a proper laboratory-type position into a big production brewery was quite a change. Uh but yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a very well trodden path. Like I wasn't expecting to become a brewer, and I didn't realize back then that that was really a career either. So it was a bit accidental. <laughs> a happy accident, though. I hope. Yeah, I'd never leave the industry now. Oh, really? Never. Even though you've seen it in all its colors and glory, and sometimes sad points, I imagine. Yeah, but it's. I don't know. I just. I can't. I see other industries and they just don't look as fun. Yeah, they're definitely not. Let me tell you, having been in other industries, definitely not. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, let's talk then uh, New Holland. Now, that was a really interesting one because even like being a Brit, we're obviously a bit, well, (laughs) we focus internally. Um, So I haven't heard, didn't have, before I started this job, I hadn't heard of that many um, US breweries apart from the classics, but New Holland I had heard of. Um, And then obviously, you know, it's, become much bigger in recent years than I imagine when you started so how did you start there like how did you get that role and you know what were the changes what did you see as you sort of developed in that role and and the brewery group getting the role was interesting they'd they'd been advertising for a quality manager for a significant amount of time and there just wasn't anyone that they'd found that had much brewery experience um so when I applied, they were they were quite keen to uh, get someone with a science background who'd been working in brewing over there. And then it was just a matter of sorting out visas, um, which all happened relatively quickly. It was a it was a good move, and 
when I arrived, we were like a medium size. And I think the, the time I was there, we more than tripled, maybe even quadrupled the volume we were doing while I was there. That's crazy. And also really interesting from an Australian perspective, because a lot of breweries are reaching that point now where they do want to grow and, you know, they're hitting all these milestones and these hurdles and they're, you know, figuring out how to grow in a sustainable way. So like, how did you do it at New Holland? Did you just keep going and getting investment and just keep getting bigger and people just demanded your beer? Like, or were there those similar challenges? I guess there were a lot of challenges because the beer that we were selling a lot of was challenging to make. Um, we were our biggest, our biggest beer there by far was a bourbon barrel aged stout, which was more than half of our volume for the year. So it meant we had to deal with, uh, apart from normal fermentation and everything, we had to deal with a lot of barrels and a lot of storage um, and a lot of issues that come with dealing with all of that, as well as um, trying to grow a beer like that requires a lot of cash flow that you don't see again for several months. So it was always a balancing act between like keeping the budgets all balanced and being able to produce enough beer for everyone. And for a long time, that beer was just constantly sold out because of that, because of those issues. Um, and the owner there was really like, he was really good about trying to do a lot of it ourselves. He kind of encouraged us to, um, you know, not take too much investment um, and really, really grow the business in like, I guess, with our own resources. He was, yeah, quite adamant that that was the way to go. And I think he was correct a lot of the time. The uh, would have been probably easy for him to take a whole bunch of someone else's money, but uh, s- slower growth over a longer time worked better for us, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point that you make about sort of it's like it's like cash flow. People say, you know, we want a brew pub, we want a venue because we get the, that immediate cash flow through. We make the beer, we sell the beer, that we get that money through, then we can reinvest that back into the business if we want. Whereas, like if you're doing barrel aging or if you're if you want to grow faster, quicker, that's going to be a really tricky thing for you to manage. Um, like we say, sustainably. Um, and one thing that really, and I know that a big focus of your career has been quality, which is brilliant. And it's something that in the Australian industry, we obviously want to and need to focus on. Um, how do you maintain that level of quality, though, as you get bigger? Because is it just a case of throwing money at it? Like, do you just get loads of lab equipment in and make sure you test everything? And is it is it a money situation? Like, you can ma- manage quality better once you have more revenue coming in. You definitely need money for quality and it's also money you're not going to see back again in the short term so you have to be willing to pay for lab equipment and lab staff and not see an immediate return so that has to be almost like a cultural thing Um, where it will save you money is by not needing to dump a lot of beer or having a recall in the future but you need to have that vision rather than just seeing the cost of everything go out the door uh the other the other part that was i guess with with quality is the culture of the guys on the floor you can have all the best lab equipment and lab people in the world but if if the guys out in production aren't doing a good job then you're still going to have ongoing issues and you're still going to end up having to crush beer or send it to the drain or recall it 
So it needs to be more of a holistic approach for quality. And mm-hmm. as breweries start to grow, that that definitely needs to be on their radar that it's not enough just to put a lab in. You need to start from everyone on the floor and, and have them aware of what good quality looks like. Obviously, what we're basically saying, the bottom line is that it is really hard to focus on quality when you're small. And maybe this is a hard question for you to answer because you worked at a much bigger level. But what ways would you suggest that smaller brewers can keep that eye on quality when they don't necessarily have the money um, to throw at labs and technicians and stuff like that? Generally, ask for help. In the States, we had some very small local breweries that were in the same town as we were. And they would come and talk to us about quality. Like they would come and talk to our lab guys and they'd see the, you know, they'd ask what we do in certain situations because we were a decade older. So we'd had more experience dealing with quality and dealing with issues. And a lot of the time we would, we would do their testing for them if they asked. And if they had issues, uh, generally within brewing, I think people are more than happy to help. So if if you're small and you don't know what to do, talk to someone who's doing a good job of quality and and I'm sure they'll help you. Well, that's it. And that's one of the lovely things about coming in the industry for me was that everyone doesn't keep their cards close to their chest necessarily all the time. Um, They are happy to share, which is really unusual for a lot of industries. Yeah. Yeah, it is a bit of an anomaly, I suppose, in some industries, but there's not a lot of secrets in brewing. We've been doing it for a long time. So if, if people think they're, they've got a lot of big secrets, I, I, I doubt that. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just on the business side usually rather than the brewing side. Um, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> no. um, lovely. And I mean, from, the, from that perspective then, in the US does sound very similar to what um, the Australian industry is. Collegiate shares that knowledge, wants to grow and wants to be better. So what was your impression of the US industry when you moved? Um, I imagine, especially when you moved the first time, it was hugely different from what existed in the um, Australian industry at the time. Um, but how has that changed? Um, I get, When I first got to the States in 2013, there was quite a boom going on for craft beer. So everyone was growing 100% a year, like breweries opening everywhere. And that obviously was very different to Australia at the time. We were still in the very early days. Like there wasn't a lot of craft brewing even around Sydney back in 2010, 2012, that type of era. There were a few starting out, but not like it is now. And yeah, when I landed in the States, there was just breweries everywhere. And the even the, the first local like hotel I stayed in the first night there had a dozen craft beer taps at their bar. It was um, quite a shock to see the size of the industry and just how much everyone was into it. It was, um, yeah, it was very different those those first few months. And then what about by the time you left? That was only two years ago now. Yeah, I guess the growth in those seven years was pretty wild as well. Um, I think there would have been two and a half thousand breweries or something in the States when I got there and there was 9,000 when I left. So there was, yeah, there was a brewery on every corner um, in some of the bigger towns and even the smallest little middle, middle of nowhere town in the States has a brewery these days. And I think because of the competition, 
the quality of most of them is really high as well. There weren't a lot of breweries around that I knew that were making bad beer. Some of them were making mm -hmm. beer that wasn't my style, but generally it wasn't bad. Oh, we'll have to talk about what your style is at some point then, Dayton. I'm really intrigued. Um, but, uh, but one thing that I, has always struck me about the US market uh, in general is that how integrated craft beer is with just people's everyday lives. Like you see them at stadiums and things like that. You see the local brewer appear in, you know, all different sorts of places. We've only just started to see like your capital brewing come into the airports and things like that over in Australia. Is that something that you noticed as well or is that just me? Definitely more of everyday life um, in the States. But even, even with that, it's still only about 15% of the beer market. Um, it's just that the beer market's so big and working in craft beer, you kind of live in a little bubble where everyone drinks craft beer and everywhere you go has craft beer. So mm -hmm. it might be a little bit, I guess, shrouded from the truth. But I think um, their market is so mature now and people are so used to craft beer that it's completely normal for everyone to expect to get an interesting beer they like everywhere they go. And I, I don't know if Australia's quite there yet, but I think they're heading that direction. And mm -hmm. now that, like, Mismatch are sponsoring the Crows and Pirate Life are sponsoring Port Power and, you know, there's it's it's inching its way into more and more people's lives. Yeah, definitely. And I, But I totally take your point as well about the fact that craft beer in the US is only, what, 15% because... Matt um, Kirkyard, my editor, he did um, he was at the CBC last week, did a really interesting article on um, a data analyst had done a really big study about uh, looking at beer menus in sort of your Applebee's and things like that, you know, the big chain mm -hmm. restaurants. And compared to the uh, how big and overblown they seem to be, like the hazies and the IPAs, all those different styles that seem so big in the craft beer industry, they're actually for mainstream drinkers barely a blip like I think oh, I don't remember the exact results but it was under 10% um, of beer menus in those chain restaurants had like a hazy in them and you're like oh okay so this is just big for us not big for the wider market which is really really interesting I thought but still like a lot more penetration in the US beer drinker uh, than potentially in Australia so maybe we've got some room to grow still yeah definitely I think um those more challenging styles like the big hazy double IPAs or sour beer or wild ferments, um, it's going to be a long time before they're on everyone's menu and I don't know if they ever will be. But in those big chain restaurants that you talk about, there's a lot of craft beer that isn't in that style. So you'd still find classics like Sierra Nevada Pale, um, maybe some stuff from New Belgium, you know, like beer that's still craft but is a little more, I guess, mainstream. So maybe mm -hmm. the it'll just be a while before, maybe it will be a little while before we see more obscure styles on Australian menus. Yeah, hopefully we see some more though because I would like a little bit more choice than a Forex Gold is all I'm saying. Um, but <laughs> not smacking not on Forex Gold, if that's your cup of tea. <laughs> but yeah, a little bit of variety would be lovely. Uh, fantastic. No, I mean, we've talked a lot about the US, 
why did you want to move back to Australia then? Um, you know, it seems like you had a lovely role there and it was in a growing brewery. And what what sort of prompted you to move back here? Um, yeah, it was a good time there. But uh, seven years is a long time anywhere. And it was just nearing the time where, I don't know, felt like I was ready for another change. And there's a lot of issues living in the US with uh, have visas and legality of things and um, it gets a little challenging and tiring after a lot of years. The visa I was on was by definition only temporary. So at any stage, um, if I'd lost my job over there or something had gone wrong, um, I needed to be out of the country within a matter of days and that gets a, that gets a little challenging to live with. So it's kind of after yeah, after Living seven years. Living on the nice edge constantly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, after seven years it might have been, <laughs> that was probably enough. Yeah, it might be fun when you're a bit younger and you're like, oh, yeah, I could just move to Europe or something like that. But no, I'm like, kind of want to chill out a little bit. Yeah, it can be challenging living somewhere else. Yeah, definitely. So how did you get the role at, at Mighty Craft then or mismatch beforehand, was it? Yeah. Um, well, I was uh, like back visiting family in South Australia after leaving the US and um, just saw that Mismatch had a quality, like a quality manager type role advertised. So I um, put my resume in and went and spoke to you and the owner. And that was about it, really. It was just a, an easy transition. They, um, the brewery was a, a nice size and they were making good quality beer. So it was, um, yeah, reasonably easy choice. Excellent. And were you looking for that slightly bigger end? Would you ever have considered something smaller or would you go back to Lion? Or was that just not on the cards? The middle ground, I think, is the sweet spot for me. Um, I'm too old to, like, brew in a five-barrel <laughs> kit every day. It's hard work. Um, <laughs> yeah, it looks it. No automation. Yeah. Doing everything no, exactly. yourself, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I don't know, I... I the really big breweries don't hold a lot of interest for me at the moment either. So somewhere in the middle is always good. And now why is that, Dayton? Is it just they're not doing the beer styles as fast as you'd want or what, what, how, how come? I'm just intrigued because I know there's a lot of skill shortages in the industry and, you know, lots of Lion and CU being are doing a lot to make uh, working there more appealing. Um, so what is it that would appeal in a job? Um, yeah, Lion and... CUB. Well, I don't have any experience with CUB, but Lion always had good conditions and good pay and everything, um, which is always attractive. But I know there's really big breweries. There's a, there's a lot of uh, structure and there's a lot of corporate stuff and there's a lot of... Uh, it's just a different world. And mm -hmm. I think at slightly smaller breweries, there's a bit more freedom. It's a bit more personal. Um, you can make changes to the beers you're going to make a bit more on the fly you know you can change a bit quicker with trends and it's just it just kind of suits my style a little bit better yeah very cool that, and I think that I think that is absolutely the key um people want to be able to have that kind of creativity and that freedom in their roles as well sometimes they want security sometimes they want that creative freedom so it's whatever you want as a person rather than necessarily um the businesses themselves I guess uh but you know it's really interesting that um and you you went back to South Australia obviously you're are you a South Australian native then yeah yep I am um, 
Ah, so wouldn't have considered another state? Oh, I would have, but it just worked out this way. I was uh, I was back visiting family more than anything. I hadn't decided on where I was going to live yet. Um, but yeah, it just kind of worked out this way. But I, I grew up only five minutes from mismatch, so it's a bit of a coincidence. Excellent. Oh, that's cool though. What a nice yeah, what a nice coincidence. Hi everyone, this is Matt. We're breaking into this podcast for a word from our sponsor, as we like to say. But not just any sponsor, as you know at Brews News, we're very selective who we work with. And this is a special partnership with Lark Whiskey, which is soon to release the fifth incarnation of its collaboration with Wolf of the Willows Brewery. In this annual exchange of ideas and whiskey barrels between Lark and Wolf, Lark hand-selects whiskey casks and sends them to the Victorian-based brewery, who fills them with Imperial Johnny Smoke Porter. Before it is decanted, and the now beer-infused casks are filled with single malt whiskey. Hang around at the end of this podcast to hear my chat with Chris Thompson, master distiller at Lark, and how he discusses the collaboration. But here's a bit of a teaser that actually comes from my preliminary chat with Chris, who gives me some surprising insights when I ask him what beer should do to become a little bit more like whiskey in the consumer's mind. Beer shouldn't try and be like whiskey. Whiskey should try and be like beer. The rituals involved with beer are integrated into society. They're not pretentious and they add so much. At Lark, we are trying to be more like beer, more democratic, more open and more welcoming to to new drinkers. Traditionally, that's not what whiskey has been. Beer shouldn't be trying to be a more serious drink. It should be a fun but complex and continue to add to society. Now, that definitely was not the answer I was expecting. And if you enjoyed that, please hang around at the end of this podcast to hear more about Chris's approach to whiskey in this bonus chat. It's a really fascinating insight into the partnership between beer and whiskey. And I think South Australia is such an interesting place in terms of brewing because obviously there's the wine industry there that's heavily influential in lots of different ways um, in people's perception of South Australia as well. But the brewing industry there is growing and it's strong, getting much stronger. What's it like now? Is like, I, like we said back in the day, you wouldn't have had much, but now it does seem to be thriving, but still slightly different in character um, potentially than other states as well. Yeah, I think like it, the craft beer industry has definitely grown here. Um, but for a for a city of well over a million people, there's still not a lot of breweries. You know, we have some big bigger players like Coopers who have been around forever uh, and Pirate Life who have, like, made a pretty big impact on the scene. But there's still not a lot of breweries per person in this state. So it's probably we don't have the, the clusters like some of the other states do, like in sort of the inner west of Sydney or Brisbane or the Gold Coast, where there's where there's lots of breweries within walking distance of each other. We're we're not quite there yet. Why do you think that is? Is it because it's just slightly smaller as a state, or is it because wine's still such a strong component to being South Australia and being in South Australia? Uh, I think being slightly smaller might be part of it, but I think another part is like conservative council views which make it difficult for people to open breweries um and just it being a newer industry and maybe south australia in general is a little more risk adverse 
But I think it's coming. I think there's a lot more interest around at the moment for people wanting to open breweries. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see over the next five years. Dayton predicts huge boom in South Australian brewing. Is that going to be my headline? <laughs> Maybe. I don't think, I don't think it'll be a we'll huge see, boom. We'll it'll, be, it'll be gradual growth, but it'll be growth. <laughs> a nice, the way the South Australia works, a nice chill acceleration. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, that's good. And any standouts? Because um, I'm a big fan of Prancing Pony. Um, are there any other brewers that you think, oh, yeah, they're really fantastic um, South Australian brewers? There's a few that uh, I guess my friends and I would frequent. Uradler Brewing always made really good beer, and it's a nice pub. A guy I used to work with back at West End many, many years ago, uh, Jeff Goodison has a brewery down in McLaren Vale. And this time of year, he has his stouts on, and they're generally excellent. Um, let's see what uh, Little Bang's a great place to stop and have a burger and a beer. So there's a few around, and then um, yeah, of course, mismatch. We make a, um, <laughs> a pretty cracking lager. So if you can, if you're looking for traditional style, that that's one to go for. <laughs> Fantastic. No, absolutely. Just thought I'd give a little, give South Australia a little shout out because sometimes I don't think it gets the credit it deserves um, in a lot of ways. Uh, and like you say, you know, more brewers are opening up all the time and they're doing some really good stuff down there as well. Um, but like it can be tricky, like when you've got those, like like you were talking about earlier, the little clusters in the inner west and places like that, Sunshine Coast, they all seem to cluster together where it's not quite the same uh, in South Australia. But hopefully that'll happen, um, like we say, in, in the coming years. Um, and mismatch plays a really interesting part in uh, South Australian brewing um, and obviously now being taken over by Mighty Craft. Um, and you were there pre and post, weren't you, the acquisition? Correct. So yeah. that must have been an interesting move. Yeah, it was... Obviously, you don't hear much about it until it all goes down. But uh, I guess on a on a production end, with a change of ownership, nothing really changes for the guys on the floor. So for us, it wasn't um, it wasn't a big change at all. the The beer still needs to get made the same way, and we we still have the the same targets to hit. So it was it was no change for us. I'm sure there was um a lot going on in the background with finance and marketing and everything, but we don't... Don't have to worry about that. We don't that. really see that impact. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No. But this new role with Mighty is more Mighty Craft then. So are you moving out of the mismatch and you're going to be Mighty Craft now? Is that how that works? Yeah, I will be I'll be part of the Mighty Craft mm -hmm. business, or I am now, as, as of mm -hmm. last week. And the role will be across uh, like Mismatch and Jetty Road. And like you mentioned before, um, helping out with uh, brands that are Mighty Craft brands like Better Beer. That must be tricky, though, because you've got this little portfolio of brands that you have to look at. They'll all have different demands and need your attention more than others at some times. How do you think you might balance that? And obviously, like, Better Beer is a huge beast at the minute. How do you divide your time between them all? Uh, I guess for the, the breweries that are already within the Mismatch group, um, Jetty Road and Mismatch, uh, sorry, within the Mighty Craft group, um, we're lucky both those places have good head brewers to kind of run daily production there. And my, my role will be to help those guys with 
like whatever they need. So we'll, we'll be working together, the three of us, to make sure that we're all on the same page for quality and we're all on the same page for safety and we're all on the same page for production efficiency and cost of goods and everything. It'll be a, a team effort across the group to make sure that everything's running correctly at those breweries. And then outside of that, working with the logistics and I guess procurement people for for the bigger brands like Better Beer. And that will, I'm sure that's bound to take up a lot of time because as you mentioned, that's a bit of a beast at the moment. It's it's on a bit of a tear. So making sure that we can sustain that is is the other part of the role. Yes, that's it, isn't it? And it must be really difficult to manage well, and I'm not saying that you're like looking after every element of it, but when you're looking after a, a contract brewer, you haven't really got eyes, I imagine, on as much as you'd want to if you, and like you have a mismatch because you're there and you're physically there and you can see all the processes. How are you going to do that? Like, are you going to go visit them all the time? Um, having only been in the role for a week, <laughs> that's something we're working still yeah, figuring fair. out. Yeah, but definitely we'll be working pretty closely uh, like with our partners on those things. Like I imagine that um, I'll definitely go and spend some time with the, with some of the production partners and get to know their facility and get to know their business a little bit so that even if we're just talking on the phone, not going in blind um, and we can be on the same page with capacity and turnaround time and things like that. Yeah, that's it. And I think you need that. And you obviously Mighty Craft saw the need for a role like yours to have that sort of umbrella overview of what's going on in all these breweries and, and like, how, as you say, how to sort of maintain a level of quality across all of them. I mean, it looks like a friggin' hard job, though. Um, <laughs> so what made you want to take that on rather than say um, just mismatch? Um, it's probably going to be a challenging role. But that's okay. It's, uh, you know, it'll be interesting and keep me busy. So I think um, some of the attraction to it was definitely being able to work with multiple breweries in multiple states and help bring all of the breweries up to the best level of safety and quality in production. So there are, there are things that Jetty Road do that are, that they do really well and there are things that mismatch do really well. And what was exciting about this role was being able to take the best of all those breweries and, and improve the whole group. So that should be, that should be a fun part of it. <laughs> I was going to say, how different are they all, all the two so far in the way they do things? Are they very different? And like, have you found that historically that if you go into different breweries, the way they um, have quality operations or safety processes, are they completely different or is there a level of uniformity anyway? I think it depends on the type of beer they're selling but also how they're selling it. Like if you go to some breweries who are doing small batches and selling all of it that weekend um, and then they make a new different type of beer and then they sell all of that, quality for those guys generally seems to be not less important but less focused on. And breweries that have core ranges that need to be very consistent, sell in multiple states and try and move volume, they'll, they'll often really put a lot more effort into quality because it's, their, their beer might be on the shelf longer. It's beer that probably isn't protected as much by high alcohol. Um, 
So, yeah, it, it can range a lot. Um, Jetty Road and Mismatch share some things in common. So Jetty Road Pale and Mismatch Session are both the biggest brands coming out of those breweries. Um, and they're, they're the main focus for each brewery. But Jetty Road have significantly more, uh, like, limited edition beers, and they do a pretty good job with MPD over there. And that's because they move a lot through their tap room. Whereas apart from Session Ale, we focus here on lager and pale ale and, and larger um, releases. So there, there's definitely some differences between mm-hmm. our breweries. And I think, yeah, we can learn from each other on that. We can Mismatch could learn to be a little bit more nimble when it comes to limited edition releases. And hopefully Mismatch can help Jetty Road when it comes to being more of a production-style brewery. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. And I, that's what part of the... One of the brilliant things about Minecraft is that, you know, we like we said earlier, we, sh- we share that kind of knowledge in the industry, but this is a way that they can actually embed that in their processes and the way that they do things um, and, and share that knowledge at a company level as well as an industry level, which is really cool. Does that mean, though, that um, you, I mean, obviously the two main ones will be Jetty Road and Mismatch and then a little bit of Better Beer. Will you be, like, going around any of the other breweries? Like, do, can they call on you if they need you? that are in the portfolio but not necessarily wholly owned by Minecraft? Or is it it's a bit early to <laughs> Yeah, it is early. But I think in general, if um if any of those guys needed help with uh anything, uh I would hope they'd be more than happy to call. Um whether it's an opinion on lab equipment to buy or how to set up a quality program or how to take the next steps with production or whatever it is. We'd, mm-hmm. anyone across the group would be more than happy to help, I'm sure. Let's get into quality then, um, because we've seen a lot of stuff on the um, pasteurizing side recently. Um, but f- firstly, I wanted to ask really what, when you go into a brewery, not necessarily um, one that you work with now, but um, when you go into a brewery, what are some of the biggest mistakes they make in terms of quality and safety? Is there something across the board or does it very much depend on, like you said earlier, the type of beer they're making or the type of business that they are? I think it de- it depends on... It definitely depends on the type of business that they are. But in, in general, I don't know, it's hard when you go into a small brewery and there's junk everywhere and the place looks filthy, it's hard to trust their quality. Um, so I <laughs> yeah, think that's true. It, it needs to be, yeah, it needs to be a cultural thing. Everyone needs to be a part of it. People knowing that general cleanliness and discipline is... I guess, a good way to start <laughs> um, and just having everyone on board, people understanding why it's important to do a really good job of cleaning even the most basic equipment, keeping keeping the parts you use clean and dry and um, checking chemical concentrations. Like the real basic stuff is, is where quality begins. Mm-hmm. And quite often when you walk into some breweries, you can, you can just tell that they're, they're not going to have that focus if they can't keep everything off the floor even yeah i breweries are they should follow the same rules as food and um ideally food manufacturing is clean and it must be hard as well if your your hospitality and your brewing operations are so integrated to get your like bar staff on board with all the stuff and it's all i guess it's just about sharing knowledge and that cultural thing you were talking about yeah it's definitely about education um if the bar staff notice that the beer that should be clear is cloudy, then um, 
if they're if they have enough education and that to just come and tell someone, then pretty quickly you could solve that problem. Yeah, and I know a lot of breweries have have tap rooms that are a big part of their business. So it's important to focus on quality across everything from from the start of brewing all the way through to what the customer sees in the glass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's a good one. And now pasteurizing. So this one seems to be a lot more divisive within the brewing industry than I actually thought it might be. Um, so Matt wrote a really interesting article. <laughs> I know, isn't it? Uh, wrote a really interesting article uh, up for talking about um, how Cody, the uh, manufacturer, had seen an uptick in interest for their smaller pasteurizing um, machines and equipment. And we posted it on Facebook. And oh my Lord, I was so shocked. Everyone was like, no way, we'd never pasteurize, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, really? Um, oh, okay, I didn't realize it was so uh, controversial. What's your take, Dayton? What's the verdict? When used correctly, they can be a very helpful tool. Um, but if you're relying on your pasteurizer because your beer's dirty, then you've got bigger problems. We used one in the States a lot um, on barrel-aged beer and especially on adjunct-heavy barrel-aged beer. So we would we would pasteurise, um, like we would flash pasteurise into bright beer um, and that allowed us to do some pretty crazy stuff with adding fruit concentrates and, God, marshmallow, caramel, all kinds of dumb stuff to make, you know, like pretty interesting limited edition beer and it also allowed us to process our beer much more efficiently um, coming out of barrels but we didn't use it on IPAs and we didn't use it on our other beers we relied on our quality program to make sure they were clean so I I have no issue with people pasteurizing if, if they use it in a manner that is helpful for their business or helpful for their brand but like I said if you if you're using it because you can't make your beer that should be clean, clean, then you should be looking elsewhere to solve your issues. And I think that's really interesting as well, because I think, uh, I guess that's the the subtext of it, that people think that if you admit to pasteurizing or if you do pasteurize, you're admitting somehow in some weird roundabout way that your beer might not be as good. And that's not necessarily the case at all. Um, but I think there is that perception in the industry. I don't know whether whether you see that as well. Yeah, there's definitely a perception that you might be cheating some way and using a pasteurizer. The quality of the beer, like, is a beer that has been through a pasteurizer as good as a beer that hasn't? Then, you know, that's that's up to, I guess, the brewery to decide on. But I I think that um, the new pasteurizers are pretty good. They they're definitely a lot better than pasteurizers from the '80s as far as holding time and accuracy of temperature and everything so you probably are damaging your beer less than you would have in the olden days but i think um if you're making big fresh hoppy ipas and you're looking for every last bit of flavor then it would be a tough choice to to pasteurize that beer mm-hmm. yeah interesting no i'm always re- i'm so intrigued to hear people's opinions of it especially because like i say it was so controversial and i was literally like oh okay didn't realize there were such vehement opinions about this one um but yeah really really interesting thanks for that Dayton. um and now one thing i wanted to have a quick chat about before uh, i let you go is like we talked 
just very briefly earlier about skills shortages in the industry. And there's a real push by the IBA to uh, bring in qualifications at TAFE level in particular. Uh, now, because you've come at it from a slightly different angle, um, but still really like highly qualified in that area type of angle, what do you think? What's the verdict on qualifications? Um, when you or any of your brewing teams employ someone, is it essential that they have qualifications? Or like, how would you decide otherwise that they were at the level that you need them to be? I think the last four, maybe five people we've hired here at Mismatch all have some qualification and most of them came through the uh, South Australian TAFE short course. So that three-month, I think it's three months, three-month brewing course they do um, at Regency TAFE where they have a, I think they've got like a 10-hectolitre brew kit and they, they do all the basic brewing stuff and they, they get an idea of how everything works and those guys have been really good. So without, I guess, that also shows that those those guys have got a bit of dedication. They, they've taken time out of their lives to study um, because they want to get into this industry. So that, that speaks to us a little bit. Um, and it sets them apart from people who come out of other industries who just want to get into brewing. As far as having qualified people apply as well they it's definitely hard you don't get a lot of applicants that have got a big brewing history so i think if you can get some education it, it's definitely a good thing it, it helps us when we're hiring and it, it's got to help people understand the industry more as well hopefully yeah and how is it over in the u.s in terms of new brewers do most people have qualifications or are they, is it similar to over here um no it was really tough over there we were in an area that had a decent amount of manufacturing and an economy that was doing okay. So just finding people at all was difficult. Um, so we we would hire pretty much anyone um, and then uh, offer them training internally. So after if they if they showed some promise um, working in the brewery after a, a pretty short time, then uh, we would pay for their. IBD qualifications if they wanted to do it and try and help them move up through the brewery uh, because getting people over there was quite difficult. And there was also some bigger breweries in our area that were quite happy to pay our qualified guys more than we could pay them. So we would sometimes bleed staff mm -hmm. um, and then have to train again. But it's, um, yeah, it was difficult for some of the time, but we, um, we managed to build a really good team there and get everyone educated and and hold on to them for some time. So mm -hmm. it was it was a lot of work, but it's it's worth it. It was required, yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, from what I hear from uh, the TAFE courses as well, there is a big focus on things like quality and safety and uh, cleanliness and hygiene and all those things that go towards um, quality that you might not necessarily get if you've come from the home brewing route potentially i don't know if that's fair to say just from a process perspective rather than i'm not saying home brewers don't clean their gear i'm definitely definitely do um but from a commercial perspective i guess um it's a slightly different beast yeah it is um i mean even just the i guess the severity of the chemicals is different in production so having the guys be aware of how dangerous 
some of the chemicals are when they come out of the TAFE course is um, is nice. So they've got some basic idea about chemical safety. And then at the SA TAFE course, they've got fermenters and a brew house that is, you know, of a like brew pub size. So they're used to using pumps and the way things connect to each other and the way the valving might work. And so they've got a baseline they can work from, which um, if you've only been doing 20 litre batches, you're probably not going to have. Yeah, again, another thing that um, like the IBA definitely has been focusing on and and we've sort of been following along um, as they sort of try and bring them into as many states as possible and grow the amount of people in them. And I think it is important for the potentially the future health of the industry to have that focus and qualifications, not for the sake of them, but to make sure that there's uniformity of process across lots of aspects of the brewing industry, including health, safety quality um all the good stuff effectively yeah if the industry is going to grow we need a a talent pool to pull from and um hopefully they can set up some good education across all the states and it'll um make it a little bit easier when it comes to hiring time Mm -hmm. absolutely right well we've come i've I've talked your ear off now uh but just last one then what, what are we predicting for the future of the Australian brewing industry in the coming years? Anything that you think we're going to be focusing on more, a style, um, more education like we've been talking about? What, what's your prediction, Dayton? Uh, as far as style goes, who knows? <laughs> um, they seem to come out of nowhere. But I would think there's a lot of uh, brands on the shelf already and it's going to only get harder to get shelf space and to get your beer in front of people and rotated through on a decent time so i think um i think there might be more breweries opening up with more of the um like big u.s tap room model where you sell locally and you move a lot of beer through your tap room and even if it's you know takeaway cans and pints over the bar rather than trying to get into dan murphy's or the bigger wholesalers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you might see a bit more of that in the coming years because that medium-sized distribution model only gets harder as there's more people playing in that space. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll have to speak in a couple of years and I can tell you if you're right then. Um, yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on, Dayton. Really appreciate it. And congrats on your new role at Mighty Craft. I'm sure you'll absolutely smash it. No problems. Um, but yeah, keep in touch and let us know how everything goes. But yeah, really appreciate you coming on Beer is a Conversation. No worries. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to that conversation. Now, here's a little bonus for you. As I hear from Lark Distilling's master distiller, Chris Thompson, who tells me a little bit more about Lark's collaboration with brewer Wolf of the Willows. I asked Chris, what is it about this whiskey and beer that really works for him? Firstly, let's start about what's amazing about this collaboration in terms of the liquid. The liquid that we take is completely polar opposite to a Johnny Smoke Porter. So the whiskey component is this bright, fun, fruity, tropical piece, right? And then the beer's like this dark, heavy, velvety, incredibly thick, viscous, 
you know, it's got bitter and it also has has sweet that play off each other. So that's the beer. And when you bring them together, then what happens is the, the whiskey is kind of like a, a prism. So you think Pink Floyd for me. You have the prism and the, the beer shines through it. But what, the, what it does, by adding extra brightness, uh, lift and alcohol to the beer, it separates the beer out. And then you can see every single component that made that beer. When we're making the whiskey, in our mind, what we're trying to do is showcase the beer in a different way. Now, the Johnny Smoke Port is such a complex and rich beer, but with the alcohol of the of the whiskey coming through it, then you can see each of those each of those components. That's the magic of this this whiskey, um, and the magic of the, the collaboration. Like in all seriousness, being a whiskey nut for fifteen plus years now, there is not a single whiskey on the planet that looks like this. It does everything that you would expect a whiskey to do but in a completely different way um and it's yeah it's like it's exhilarating it's exciting like no other whiskey yeah it was probably it's my favorite whiskey to make every year because of that so as a distiller with 15 years experience what has chris learned from his experience in partnering with a brewer yeah probably that i'm a bit dumb so i started off and was like no this isn't going to work there's no chance that i'll you know this whole thing i was so skeptical and then we went through sort of one so we sort of take different casks that look a bit different and we mix it with the beer and be like what does it taste like oh it doesn't taste very good and we did that about seventh time where it was actually the very last whiskey um sort of representation of the portfolio of what our casks have that we tried that it was like oh wow that's like incredible we have to do this and at that point i don't even think i'd spoken to scotty i think um one of my outsiders johnny had been speaking to, to Scotty about it and I called Scott. I was like, we've got to do this thing. I'm excited now. So um, what I learned was that I don't know what I'm talking about, at least five years ago. Don't trust your instincts and try everything. Um, and then from there, there, what we try to do each year is provide the same backbone of flavour, um, but do it in a slightly different way. So if Chris was surprised that this collaboration could work, how has that changed over the course of five iterations of this whiskey? You know, Wolf Number One was just about um, a pure expression of balance. Wolf Number Two was um, trying to provide the most of this sort of prism experience with the the beer shining through and just showcasing. The third one was about excess. Absolutely, there should be too much of everything going on all of the time. It was just this outrageous over-the-top thing. The Wolf Number 4, which is my favourite, it's actually my favourite whiskey um, that we've done in my 15 years. So, of, you know, 500,000 whiskies that I've blended, um, that's my number one. I've got three bottles at home and they seem to go, it used to be four bottles. So that's probably a, that's probably a pretty good sign. Wolf Number 4 was, to me, just this balanced experience that just it just showcased everything that was great in the beer and just it was just a little piece of um, exhilaration. It's just every time I try it, I just can't believe how much is going on in that, uh, how easily you can see every component of the beer, but also the whiskey, but it's only flashes really quickly as it moves on to the next experience, I suppose, the next flavor. And then this year, this year is the one with the most beer in it. So usually what would happen is that we'd fill the casks all the way up with the whiskey to soak the beer out. But we haven't done that this year. We've actually only sort of 60% filled them. So the ratio of beer to whiskey is way higher. And so this year, the, the beer sits as this kind of solid block 
within the whiskey and it just showcases it in a completely different way, which is just really magical. And then if you add water to the whiskey, which sort of changes the surface tension, then it just erupts and launches out, which is just, yeah, there's no whiskey like it on the planet. And it's just, as you can tell, I get pretty excited. Finally, with so much detail already provided, I asked Chris just how this whiskey is made. In terms of making this thing, there's this like horrific logistics thing that you've got to go through. So we send barrels of whiskey or, or barrels that have held classic cask, which is one of, uh, I think it's the most popular Australian whiskey ever sold, I think. So it's like, it's our, one of our flagships and it's just, yeah, if you haven't tried it, definitely try it. It's pretty cool. So these are export and sherry whiskey um, barrels, mostly from Sebelsfield Winery and mostly the wood for those will be at least 100 years old. So they would have held wine in it and then they've held fortified either a sherry or a port in it for, you know, 60, 70 years, probably refilled a couple of times, sort of, you know, through its period. But, yeah, generally generally around 100-year-old um, in terms of when it was chopped down as a tree. We get those, we fill it full of our whiskey, then we empty our whiskey out, send them straight up to Melbourne to, um, to Wolf, to, to Scotty, Scotty puts the beer in it, so it soaks out all this kind of porty, sherry, sweet um, whiskies, um, raises the ABV. But then we have an issue because if if Scotty just empties the barrels out and then sticks the buns back in and shoot, ships them back to us in Tassie, then the chance of oxidisation, the chances of the beer changing in a really negative way, you know, infection as well, are really high. And so the good thing about the product that we make being you know, 60 plus percent is it freezes that, that process. It freezes that, you know, those changes in the barrel. And so, yeah, what we actually do is we ship the whiskey up. So we'll blend the whiskey against what last year's um, beer was, get a pretty good idea of what it should be. And then what we'll do is we'll ship the whiskey up to, to Scotty to put in the beer barrels. And so they'll empty the barrels and within 20 seconds of that barrel being empty, there's whiskey going into that barrel. Um, and so you freeze and you capture the pure essence of that amazing beer, which is pain in the ass, to be honest, but it's, uh, it's the right thing to do. It's what makes the whiskey so good. So that's a little bit about Lark's Wolf Release 5 launching on August 8 this year. I know I'm looking out for this one. Watch out for a few more chats about beer and whiskey in the coming weeks, including a chat with Scott from Wolf of the Willows. 